0: What a beautiful offering to the Lord. Can you say amen? Makes me think of the word of Paul writing to the Philippians when he says, Let us lay hold of that for which Jesus Christ has laid hold of us. You may let go, but Jesus isn't letting go. Hang on, but remember someone greater than you is hanging on. Let's pray. Father, we're here before you with all of our great need, flaws and foibles and so much worse than words could even describe at times. But Lord, through your divine grace being transformed. And this morning, Lord, seeking to be instruments of transformation. Thank you for everything you've done in these last few weeks. Taking our young people down to an outdoor education in which your glory and beauty was manifold and blessing so many people in rediscovering the power of your presence in physiology and natural law through our immersion program. And now, Lord, I'm praying, lay your healing hand on us. Do more than we could ask or think and bless us as we take on some challenging subject matter this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You have your Bibles. Open them up, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 40. And I'm going to go after this a little different than the first service. You know there's an old adage out there, and it says this, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him what? Okay. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. How in the world did they come up with a saying like that? There's a reason in Jeremiah chapter 40, it's all over. Nebuchadnezzar had had enough. You need to know, and I won't take as much time as I did in the first service, but you need to know that before Zedekiah was made king, Nebuchadnezzar, who had Daniel back in, in uh, Babylon and who had uh, Ezekiel going with him, Nebuchadnezzar made Zedekiah promise in the name of his God that he would not rebel. You need to know that. And about three months after Nebuchadnezzar is gone, the rebellion's on, and it will last 11 years. And about nine and a half years into that, God will direct Nebuchadnezzar back. This time after a siege of about a year and a half, uh, Jerusalem will fall. Nobody wanted to destroy the temple. Nebuchadnezzar knew this was the true God, And yet the fury of those soldiers and the wrath of the king was meted out on the people. Now, Jeremiah survived through a faithful message and the provision of God. His servant Baruch, from which uh, part of our scripture reading came, was lamenting that his his, uh, senior uh, prophet was in jail and uh, things weren't working out. And God said, look, quit looking for good things inside this system. It's not coming to you, but I'll give you your life. Now in Jeremiah chapter 40, we have Nebuzaradan, who is the personal emissary of the king to Jeremiah. To take good care of him. The word was clearly enough communicated, and Jeremiah was not on the on the uh, execution list. Instead, he was on the most favored list. He was a VIP. And I want to read this with you. Jeremiah chapter 40 says, "The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, captain of the bodyguard, had released him from Ramah." When he had taken him bound in chains among all the exiles of Jerusalem and Judah, who who were being exiled to Babylon, now the captain of the bodyguard had taken Jeremiah and he said to him, the Lord your God promised this calamity against this place, and the Lord has brought it on and done just as he promised because you people sinned against the Lord and did not listen to his voice. Therefore, this thing happened to you. Now, I want to know why does Zaradan get off with so much confidence and so much cockiness and so much need to tell the prophet why this happened? I want you to think about it. Why does there have to be this encounter? I can have no doubt, but amongst the annals of Babylon and the communiques of the king, There was this knowledge of the excellency of Daniel's God. And how many of those Babylonian soldiers felt a bit uh, remorseful that they had destroyed the temple of the living God? And Nebuchadnezzar, Dan, is compelled to say to Jeremiah, this didn't need to happen. Now, it's important uh, this morning that we start here, but let's go just a little bit farther. Flip over a chapter or two. And now Jeremiah after having been given choice he can go back to Babylon and live a VIP life Nebuzaradan and the king will take good care of him or he can be a faithful prophet and shepherd and stay with his people he chooses chooses the latter and in the prospect of it all the Babylonian emissaries and proteges of the king leave and now what's left is a little remnant and that remnant led by Gedaliah and some what will turn out to be very proud men, say to uh, Jeremiah, we need a word from God. Now go to chapter 42, verse 5. Then they said to Jeremiah, may the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us. Now I'm going to pause right there. Could you pray like that? God, you witness against me if I don't do What I'm saying, I'll do in your presence and in the presence of a witness. At the heart of this journey this morning, which is a very difficult journey to make, I want you to understand that what the scripture says is true. What God builds up, sometimes he tears down. And it goes against everything in his person in the same way that a parent who would like to do so much for a child, finding that child in rebellion watches like the prodigal, as things are torn apart and wasted. And yet in the larger lesson of self-discovery and coming to oneself, God does allow it. But we want God to witness against us if we do not act in accordance with the whole message with which the Lord your God will send to us, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. We will listen to the voice of our Lord our God whom, he, whom we are sending you to so that it may go well with us when we listen to the voice of the Lord our God. Now that's quite a setup to what's about to happen. Now at the end of 10 days, verse 7, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. And I'm going to skip over some of it because I've got to cover a lot of ground. Verse 11, the short version was stay in the land. Verse 11, don't be afraid of the king of Babylon, whom you are now fearing. Don't be afraid of him, declares the Lord, for I'm with you to save you and deliver you. Now I'm going to skip over a lot, go to chapter 43. But as soon as Jeremiah, whom the Lord, verse 1, whom the Lord their God had sent, had finished telling all the people all the words of their God, that is all these words, Azariah, the son of Hoshaiah, and Johanan, the son of Kariah, and all, this version says, the arrogant men said to Jeremiah, you're telling a lie. The Lord your God has not sent you to say you're now, you are not to enter Egypt and reside there. Now let's have a little empathy for them. Over the last 20 years, the shadow of Babylon has hung over the city. And three times Nebuchadnezzar came. He took Daniel in the first group, Ezekiel and all the rich and all the tradesmen in the second group. And in the last group, he did a lot of murdering, if that's the word for war. And when it was all said and done, blood ran in the streets, walls were torn down, houses were burned, the temple was destroyed. And after all of that, you'd think there'd be some credibility. But Jeremiah's got to confront the elements. Chapter 44, the culture was so bad that even after testifying that God would witness against them, which he did, we find this encounter. Verse 7 of chapter 44, now then thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, why are you doing great harm to yourselves? So as the Cut off from you, man and woman, child and infant, from among Judah, leaving yourselves without a remnant, provoking me to anger with the works of your hands, burning sacrifices to gods in the land of Egypt, where you are entering to resign. Verse 10, but they've not become contrite even to this day. Verse 11, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I'm going to set my face against you, which is what they witnessed And prayed and asked for, for woe, even to cut off all Judah. Skip down to verse 17. As far as the message that you've spoken to us, this is now another dialogue with those who want to run to Egypt instead of doing what God has said. As far as the message you've spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we're not going to listen to you. But rather, we will certainly carry out every word that has proceeded from our mouths by burning sacrifices to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, just as we ourselves, our forefathers, our kings, and our princes did in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food, and we were well off, and we saw no misfortune. But since we stopped burning sacrifices to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we've lacked everything, and we've met our end by the sword and by famine." And then the women get in the picture. And there's quite a fierce conversation that follows in that chapter, which I don't have time to go over. Friends, how does a culture go so far off that after a prophet has announced decade after decade and it comes true, how does it go so far off after people say, pray for us, and he takes 10 days to do it, and God witness against us if we don't listen? How does the culture go so far off that they misconstrue and retwist the data and say, the God, the Queen of Heaven is the one that has been really taking good care of us? This morning, if there was a need for men and women of wisdom, it is today for there is nothing new under the sun we are swimming in boatloads of data and wisdom is the great need now let's go one more place before we jump a little farther in let's go back to 2nd chronicles chapter 36 2nd chronicles chapter 36 and let's understand before we get going the big picture 2nd chronicles chapter 36 looking at verse 15 and 16 this is all the same time period in verse 11 we start the, the discussion of zedekiah which is the one who promised before god to nebuchadnezzar he wouldn't rebel and he did and finally verse 15 the lord the god of their fathers, sent word to them again and again By his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But let's think of those arrogant men and women that we just read about in Jeremiah 42 and 43 and 44. But in spite of those constant messengers and messaging, they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words. Scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people and there was no remedy. Whoa. Now, let's get on with the educating. Of Jesus, I've taken a few minutes in each of these sermons to remind you like Paul did in 2 Corinthians 11 with some foolishness you could say and yet a desire to link. Somebody might watch this sermon that hasn't watched any of the rest. So I need to remind you, I receive my salvation. I receive my calling or occupation and I receive my lifelong wonderful marriage partner through Christian education. Most people don't get that much. The other thing is that I'm married to a teacher in my opinion, the best teacher in the world, but it's all right with me if there's a bunch of other best teachers in the world out there. My father-in-law is an education of superintendent. I pastored an academy church for almost 20 years. I sat on an education board for the same length of time. I've sought to build up the work of God however I can, wherever I can, wherever I go, but more than that, my education costs more than most people my mother started fighting my father when i was born 56 years ago saying he'll go to that school no he won't Baxlin, seventh day adventist mother agnostic uh, laissez-faire catholic dad but you know what i went i was there two years we couldn't afford the bill school board chairman calls up and says your kids will have to go home if you can't can't come if you don't pay the bill my sister burst out into tears It was more than I could take. It was certainly more than my parents can take. I've never seen my mother maybe quite so mad as she was after that phone call. I know school board chairpersons. I know treasurers and financiers. It's got to go. But extend the arm of goodwill and prayer and support and redemption as far as you can. My dad refinanced our house in the early 80s at 14, 15, 16% interest, whatever it was, and it was that way for a long time. Yes, my education has cost more than most people. My academy and college education cost more too. I spent many summer, all my summers, and lots of my breaks. The single most lonely moment in my young adult life came when I was stuck in Meyer Hall at Andrews University, I had fallen in love with my would-be wife, and I was working my Christmas vacation in a place that was usually robust with young people, and I was all alone shoveling snow and all the other things that you did on the grounds department. And Christian education has continued to cost me dearly, sometimes for the ones I'm serving, the most life-changing career experience of my life was standing up to a conference president who was not a man of integrity and to an academy leader who was not a man of integrity. And they both happened to be on the job at the same time, which may not have been a coincidence. And rather than going into the story as much as I did in the first service, I can just tell you this as a little expose of how it worked. They took our seniors on a class trip. Somehow, one of the younger members of the Cicero Church got a tattoo while she was on the trip. Now, mind you, if you have a tattoo, may God help you as you go forward in the ages, ages where tattoos don't look so good on you. But the truth of the matter is, most parents sacrificing for Christian education don't really have it in mind that on a senior class trip, their children are coming back with tattoos. And this tattoo was put just right here on the inside of a heel of a young female, of an ankle, I should say. Can you imagine how the parents felt? But it got worse than that. Because before it was all said and done, as they were gathering the seniors to come back to Indiana Academy, they tell all of them, now be sure and don't tell anybody back in Cicero what went on because they won't understand. Well, you're right. We didn't understand. And it created a huge problem. And I worked... For years, in an environment where, like David underneath saw, I sought to properly support the people above me, even though at times there was an absence of integrity. And over issues of Christian education, the whole direction of my career was changed. But I work for God. And if there is something I learned as a young man, it is these words. The greatest want of the world is the want of men men who will not be bought or sold men who in their inmost souls are true and honest people because it's men and women who do not fear to call sin by its right name people whose conscience is true to duty as the needle to the pole people who will stand for the right though the heavens fall are you that kind of person do you have a god big enough for when the heavens are falling I want to assure you, if the conference president could have hit a button and ejected me from his conference, it would have happened, except for one thing. As a young, relatively ignorant young pastor about how things work, I was not ignorant about how God worked, and I sought to show dignity and nobility in problem-solving and treat all people as I would like to be treated and still do what was right." And I'm standing here before you today because I work for God, and God can take care of His workers. And may God bless you as parents. May you not be afraid of how it's going to turn out. May you be fearful that you will be unfaithful on the journey of a stewardship that is without par, without equal. There are men and women who, like Daniel, will do what is right. You are being called To be one of them because your God has the ability to strengthen you, to help you, to uphold you with his righteous right hand. And if you have no chapters of finding out today, when the trouble of tomorrow comes, it'll be unnecessarily hard. Now, why all of that? Why all of that? Because the chapter in religious education history that we're about to study is not a good one. Now, I'm reading from The Desire of Ages on the education of Jesus. This paragraph is in your bulletin. And while nothing is as simple as it sometimes sounds, nothing is as complex as a person who doesn't want to acknowledge or move. Here's the paragraph. I take 10 points from this, which I'll go over very quickly. One is good, nine are bad. Number one. In the days of Christ, the town or city that did not provide for the religious instruction of the young was regarded as under the curse of God. That's good. If a child is depending upon you to get them to successful, happy, functional adulthood, and you do a bad job, you've gone a long way towards ruining their lives. Now, mind you, we've all survived our parents, and my kids survived me. God's bigger than the parents. But children are a heritage from the Lord, and they're not to be set on a shelf while you pursue your goals and fulfill your dreams. Kick the bucket away. You don't need a bucket list. All you need is to be filled daily by the Holy Spirit and find the joy of being a dad, a mom, and doing what you said you'd do when you brought the child into the world. Is there still a curse? Is it a biblical curse? Well, I suspect there is. What did Jesus say? If you cause one of these little ones to stumble, it'd be better for you than what? A millstone. And by the way, this is not your little pestle where you grind up something in your home. This is the oxen-moved millstone. If that millstone would be hung around your neck and you'd be thrown in the depths of the sea. Think twice before you have a baby. Have it in the context of married love. Do it God's way and enjoy the privilege and may your children rise up and call you blessed. A curse for the absence of religious instruction. The good news is there was religious instruction in Nazareth. Number two, reading on. Yet the teaching had become formal. Concerned, we could say, with outward appearance. That's a problem. There's nothing wrong with routine learning, but as soon as formal becomes the directive as opposed to alive, vital. We have a problem. Number three, the mind was crowded with material that was worthless to the learner. How do you determine worth? How many of you have ever played the game trivial pursuit? Why do we think people who know trivial things are the smart ones? I know people that when I've played Trivial Pursuit with, I need on my team because they know every Hollywood actor from every show for the last 60 years. Worth is determined by goals and values, and if the value and the goal is a happy life here and a happier life on the other side, maybe we ought not to use material that is worthless to the learner relative to our goal which is heaven we've gone far enough down the road of creating young men and young women who can command big salaries so what you're not your worth as recorded on your bank statement and you're not your worth as recorded on the diplomas hanging on your wall and you're not your worth based on what kind of home you're going to eat your Sabbath lunch in or what kind of car you're going to go there in. You're none of those things. They're all going to burn. Last night, someone in our church was laying in bed. They were awoken precipitously this morning. All of the glass shelving hanging on one of their walls came crashing down this morning at 6 a.m. And usually things on glass shelves are worth something. And usually things on glass shelves are fragile. The person said to me as I walked into the door of church this morning, he said, i would thought about not coming. And then I realized, it's all gonna burn. And our job is not to create the biggest bonfire. That was another member who told me that once. The fourth thing is that it would not be recognized in the higher school of the courts above. Now, heaven is a school. If you haven't done well in school here and you don't like it, that's okay. Make a success of life with the education of life, however it comes. But heaven's going to be a school. Jesus will be the master teacher. You'll get to do some teaching. The angels will do some teaching. But heaven's going to be a school. And you know, there are... Entrance requirements and what we're teaching should pass the mustard on entrance requirements. If it doesn't fit the value system, then it ought not to be recognized here because it won't be recognized in the higher school of learning. Five, the experience which is obtained through a personal acceptance of God's word had no place in the educational system, they were absorbed in the round of externals. Listen. I want to tell you how the brain works. When I was a young man, I went to summer camp. Actually, before I went to summer camp, I had an uncle who had a boat. And if you have a boat, you should learn how to walk on the water, right? And so I was bobbing out there, and those big wooden boards were like this way and this way, and there was a rope between them, and I was supposed to yell, hit it. And then I was supposed to drink half of the lake. Some of you have done it. And then I was supposed to fall down and be plastered on the face of the water until I remembered to let go of the rope. And it was all supposed to be fun. I did it a few times and decided it wasn't fun, and I quit. I'm the oldest of four children, I have two younger sisters and the next sister in line decided she was going to try it. This happened at camp as well, same kind of experience. But then one day in northern Wisconsin at a little resort called St. Germain, called Cox's Estral Resort in St. Germain, I hear the horn going and there's this little, there's this orange boat out there, which happens to be my uncle's going round and round and behind the boat is my younger sister walking on water. That only meant one thing. I had to go back down there and bob in the water and figure out what I hadn't gotten right all those other times waiting for the experience that was supposed to be worth it. I stuck with it until I did it because there was no sister that was going to be doing something I couldn't do. (laughs) Later on, I worked at camp, and I had progressed beyond the basics to where I wanted to try to do it on one ski. And I tried it, and I was this way and that way and drinking water and everything else, but I was bigger and stronger and knew how to hold my breath longer, and eventually, my body was up on the water with one ski. And I had watched those people out there Those big rooster tails coming out behind him. So I went out there, and I leaned on the ski this way, didn't get too much. And then I hung on for a while. I leaned on the ski this way, and I didn't get too much, and I couldn't figure it out. Eventually, I was tired, and I stopped. I went home to the camp, had my supper, forgot about it all. But the next day, when I managed to walk on the water again, all of a sudden, something clicked. And I had watched many times. And so that day, when I had the rope in my hand, I just kind of leaned way in. And then I went around and I leaned way in and pretty soon it looked like I knew what I was doing. I want to explain something to you, especially if you're an educator. The reason the brain should not be continually cramped with information is that God made the brain to do things when nobody else was telling it to do it and the owner of the brain wasn't telling it to do it. God can take those down moments and connect dots and create experiences. But when the experience is constantly being directed by somebody else, and there's no room for an encounter with the living God, when there's no time to think, only to process other men's thoughts, which, by the way, if you've read the book of education, is not the goal. God does some amazing creative things and goes beyond the instructor and the instructee to epiphanies, to moments of aha, to ideas, creativity, ingenuity. But let's keep going. There were no quiet hours to spend with God. I worked once with a man who I think is now a vice president of one of our colleges, Russell Laughlin. And I believe if you go to Keene today, Russell, maybe Dr. Laughlin, I don't know. know—is one of the vice presidents, or he was. He and I shared a little time at the front desk at Andrews University when I worked for James White Library. And it was a poignant moment for me. He was a year or two older than I, maybe a little bit more. And he said to me, Ron, I always wanna get an honest A. (laughs) Well, good, I'm glad I'm not working with a cheater. And he said, no, Ron, I don't want to take time from God and I don't want to take time from my wife for my academic successes. How many times have I cautioned somebody going off to school not to bow down at the idol of academic achievement with the offering on the sacrifice being communion with the master educator and the designer of their very being? Our school systems are not to press and push to where it's an unnatural decision to be with God. Number seven, in their search after knowledge, they turned away from the source of wisdom. Do you know the difference between knowledge and wisdom? We're swimming in data. When John ends his gospel and he says, In effect, we could fill more than all the books. When Ellen White refers to the books of her age as the frogs of Egypt that are everywhere, what would she say today? You couldn't live long enough to do one small percent of what there is to study. The difference between knowledge and wisdom is the difference between knowing what matters and what doesn't and how to use it. They didn't know. The great essentials, number eight, of the service of God were neglected. Too busy learning to do, to be for God. It is the first paragraph of the book, Education, that the great aim of all education is the joy of service here and anticipation of the higher joy of service In heaven. Number nine, that which was regarded as superior education was the greatest hindrance to real development, and that must be the most painful sentence of the whole paragraph. The arrogance of Gedaliah and his crew that would defy inspiration in the name of data, superior matriculation of the information. This, perhaps, is the great sin of the 21st century. It is the arrogance of academia. Of course, it's not limited to academia, but it is the arrogance of the specialist too far removed from the inspiration and the humility of knowing one's own self to where what they're holding up is actually the greatest hindrance to the real development of the person. Without humility, there is no knowledge worth knowing. And number 10, under the training of the rabbis, the powers of the youth were repressed. Their minds became cramped and narrow. So you know what? Jesus didn't go to school with them. And that's probably the hardest thing for me to tell you. He didn't go to their schools. Would he go to ours? So let's study now for a moment about his education, because that was pretty negative. So what was his education like? Jesus gained a knowledge as we may do. Same book. His intimate acquaintance with the scriptures shows how diligently his early years were given to the study of God's word. But you're too busy to have family worship with your kids. You're too busy to help them study the lesson. Well, then you're too busy. What are you gonna give up? May need a different job, may need a smaller house, may need only one person working in the home, at least for money. It was the study of God's word This is the great expansion of person. That is the first cornerstone. It's not in the way. Wouldn't it be wonderful if our universities produced such business students that they were known not only for their ability to manage finance and take risk, but they were the men and women of sterling integrity that any organization could hire and there would never be a doubt when the auditors looked at the books. The second thing, Spread out before Jesus was the great library of God's created works. He who had made all things studied the lessons which his own hand had written in earth and sea and sky. You talk about humble. Humble. Too busy to walk out into a night sky. Too busy to pause and ponder the ants. Too busy. The third thing Well, he was familiar with poverty, self-denial, and privation, and while that's not something we need to automatically create, this experience was a safeguard to him. In his industrious life, there were no idle moments to invite temptation. No aimless hours opened the way for corrupting associations. So far as possible, which is not totally possible, he closed the door to the tempter. But let's go a little farther. This idea of useful work, the exercise that teaches the hands to be useful and trains the young to bear their share of life's burdens, listen to what it does. This is inspiration, it's not data. It gives physical strength and it develops every faculty. All should find something to do that will benefit be, be, make them beneficial to themselves and helpful to others. God-appointed work is a blessing, and only the diligent worker finds true joy and glory in life. And lastly, on this subject matter, the approval of God rests with loving assurance upon children and youth who cheerfully take their part in the duties of the household. Sharing the burdens of father and mother, such children, listen to this, may every pastor rise up and say, you go parents, such children will go out from the home to be useful members of society. One of the reasons Seventh-day Adventist churches are still working, amidst all the pressure of a secular hedonistic culture is because there's a lot of parents doing a good job. Praise the Lord. But I'm calling you in the name of Jesus Christ to go a step farther. The fourth thing, Jesus had responsibilities. Jesus, desire of ages, page 73, did not shirk care and responsibility, as do many who profess to be his followers. It's because they seek to evade this discipline that so many are weak and inefficient. Were you wanting to raise weak and inefficient kids, parents? Is that who we want to produce teachers? Is this our goal, pastors, weak and inefficient kids? Then you know what? They've got to bear some responsibilities. But you know what? If nobody brings their kids out to church, except at church time, we can think it's got to be a good sermon and a good special music and not too long of a prayer and we got what we want. I'm here to tell you, the pastor's main job is to provide work for all the members. That's Christian service, page 72. It's my job to do what I can to let you find your fulfillment in the service of Christ. If you won't bear any responsibilities, you'll be weak and inefficient. I knew this for my kids. They had responsibilities. I brought my boys to the work beat. And they worked with me. And I wasn't nearly as efficient keeping three young men in line as I would have been leaving them at home. But now they're part of my efficiency. And when they serve the church, they're serving partially as a legacy to their father's duties. Friends, if you don't ever take up any responsibilities at church, what kind of role model are you leaving for your kids? Oh, somebody else will do that. Now, this is a bigger church. Oh, the Lord pity the bigger church pastors. Because everybody's job is nobody's job, and there's a hundred other people to do it, and I don't need to do it. Why don't you pray? Why don't you ask God what you're supposed to be doing? I know this: the church work is the organized work of salvation, a fortress of God in a revolted world, and is supposed to have foot soldiers and infantrymen and lieutenants and captains and corporals and all the rest so that we could do something. I could not be much prouder than I am of this church right now after two weeks of such intensive service. I want to tell you, the people who worked at this program, the immersion program, over the last two weeks, they will be blessed in magnificent ways, the first of which they've already received for the joy of their service. But there are all kinds of churches that can come back to life if people will bear a few responsibilities, and Jesus did in his youth. Why not us? Empathy. So long as he lived among men, the Savior shared the lot of the poor. You know, I stood on this platform a few days ago, a few weeks ago, and I said, if there's one thing I would do over as a parent, well, there's more than one. But this is the big one for me. So long as he lived among men, our Savior shared the lot of the poor. He knew by experience their cares and hardships, and he could comfort and encourage Jesus was the fountain of healing for the world, and through all those secluded years at Nazareth, his life flowed out in currents of sympathy and tenderness. Listen to this paragraph. You have to fall in love with our Jesus. The aged, bring your kids to church. There's only old people there, they say. Well, come be a a fountain of mercy to the old people. The aged, the sorrowing, the sin burden, the children of play and their innocent joy, the little creatures of the groves, the patient beast of burden, all were happier for his presence. He whose word of power upheld the worlds would stoop to relieve a wounded bird. There was nothing beneath his notice and nothing to which he disdained to minister. You know, when your kids go to stepping on the ants, my school teacher told us to stop We don't need to be wanton, reckless killers of the most amazing little insect that the wisest man said we ought to study, not destroy. Empathy. How many of our kids are growing up self-centered with locked hearts? They've got everything they want. Life isn't hard. They don't bear any responsibilities. They don't know the joy of service. They know the joy of being served, which isn't going to work with a spouse someday, at least not a self-respecting one. Especially you ladies, listen to me. Meditation and prayer develops the mental and moral faculties, desire of ages. His quiet, simple life, desire of ages. The more quiet and simple the life of the child, the more free from artificial excitement, the more in harmony with nature, the more favorable to its physical, mental vigor, and spiritual strength. You got little kids in your life, the last thing you want to do is introduce them. the virtual world. Unless, of course, you don't want mental vigor, moral and spiritual strength, duty and destiny. He was doing God's service just as much as when he was laboring at the carpenter's booth, as when working miracles for the multitude. Now, I have a question written in my notes that I'm going to ask. Should we be surprised with such a varied education that he would turn out so different than the religious rulers of his day and that conflict would follow. What's the Bible say in John 1, verse 11? He came unto his own and his own what? Okay, now, in the last five or ten minutes, this is where it gets really heavy. After the flood, God started over. Who did he start with? Come on, who's the patriarch of Israel? Abraham. When Abraham receives the promise that those that bless you all bless and those that curse you all curse, you know what, friends, that blessing is for us. Finally, about the year 1050 or so B.C., there's an actual country with a king. The first king is a washout because of his pride. The second king becomes a type of Jesus. His name was what? David. How many years is it until Jeremiah? Well, let's do the math. Let's just say, for generalizing sake, that we're at about 1,000 B.C. during the days of David, and Nebuchadnezzar comes the first time in 606 B.C., 605. We got somewhere in the range of four to five hundred years. When Nebuchadnezzar shows up, off goes Daniel. We're going to retrain him, send him back to Jerusalem. But that doesn't work because Jerusalem rebels all the time. So Nebuchadnezzar comes back. He takes, he takes Ezekiel and all the rich people and all the, the, the tradesmen. And uh, he goes back again and he says, Zedekiah, promise me in the name of your God you won't rebel. Within months of being gone, Zedekiah rebels And Nebuchadnezzar seems to put up with it for a long time, but after almost a decade, he comes back. And finally, he destroys everything. Could I ask you something? Did what God plant, did he tear it up? Well, if you're in doubt, do yourself a little Bible study this afternoon and find out who Nebuchadnezzar was and whether or not he was God's servant. He's his chosen instrument. And that's why Jeremiah tells Zedekiah he's stuck inside Jerusalem with this spineless king. And he tells him, if you would just go over to the Babylonians, your life will be spared. But he's afraid. He's never learned that God is real, and he won't do it. So finally, just before Nebuchadnezzar breaks in, they run out one of the back gates of the city. They make it all the way down to the plains of Jericho, and Nebuchadnezzar's men catch him. And what do they do? They bring all of his sons in front of him, and he watches. It'll be the last thing he ever sees. And then they poke his eyes out. It's curtains. Now let's do it again. From the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that command comes in 457 B.C., up until the time of Jesus. What do we have? About another 400 to 500 years. As a matter of fact, the 70 weeks prophecy. Is almost 500 years exactly. Jesus comes to confirm the covenant. They destroy him. I wonder in the annals of evaluation if that might not look like, since he's the cornerstone, that something's really being torn down. They're doing it with their own hands. But after he dies, and after Stephen is stoned... They have about 40 years and the Romans come and what happens, friends? It's all destroyed again. Now this last little bit here I believe is true to humanity and true to the types. This April, on April 17. Well, let's start with the easiest way to say this. On April 18, which is a Sunday morning, will be the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther standing at the Diet of Worms, saying, here I am, I can do no other, so help me, God. My conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither safe nor prudent. And I've heard many say that the Reformation is over. The Reformation is what? Dead. Is it possible that the spirit of the world should so invade the Christian church, the Protestant church, and perhaps even the Adventist movement to where some of the things that God has built up may have to come down because we've not hearkened to the voice of the prophets. I'm holding three books in my hands. This one here is The Story of Our Church, published in 19, 1956 and 60. This was a curriculum book. Man. It's no little book. 580 pages. I don't know how you could go through our school and study this book and not be proud of our church, but I want to tell you what, like the rest of society, we've done a good job of looking at the bottom of the shoe of our church. We've done a good job of castigating and criticizing all the people that have come before us and somehow suggested they've subjected us to a journey of legalism, I'll tell you what, we have only begun to discover the Christ they knew and the love of Christ that constrained them to go into all the world. And this kind of book used to be a part of the curriculum of our middle schoolers. I'm holding another one called Our Story of Missions, published in 1931 by a former General Conference president, W.A. Spicer. This was an academy and college book. And it is amazing theology of the Great Commission, starting with the apostles and going forward to the exploits of godly men and women and young people in the name of the three angels' message. This it was a part of our curriculum. And now I'm holding one my wife put in my hands last night, and interestingly enough, it was one of her aunt's books, published in 1931, called A True Education Reader. And wouldn't you know it, she didn't notice this, but when she handed it to me, it's actually for the fourth grade, which is the grade my wife teaches. It is for silent, oral, and memory work. And this book, as I opened it up, could not help but be a vaccination against the superficiality of our age. And yes, it's entitled A True Education Reader. Is this pump? Is this arrogance? Or is it an attempt to recognize that something very different should mark the experience of our young people in our schools? We are not to be one knockoff from the common core. We're to be looking to Jesus and the inspired word. There are four specifically inspired writings. Education, councils on education, councils to parents and teachers and students, and the book Fundamentals of Education. When is the last time, if you're a parent or a teacher or a pastor, you have read them? Have you ever read them? No, Jesus did not attend the schools of his day. And while I do believe in homeschooling, I also believe that part of the schooling involves the serious integration into the collective family with lessons to be learned outside of the family circle. And while that's a personal choice along the way, should you choose to homeschool, still support the efforts of the local elementary, high school, college, or university program. I'm holding in my hands. A book written by an Andrew, well, let me just check. I believe it's Nelson. This book was given to me, yes, Andrew Nelson, PhD. I had a retired pastor call me up this week and say, oh, Ron, I've got a, 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 a compiling, a compendium of all these quotes from an old education class I took. He said, there have been teachers that have wanted me to give them this book, but I have refused but I want to give it to you. I've been listening to the messages. I want to give it to you. He brought it to me, and God started connecting some dots. (laughs) This professor is in this book, A Century of Miracles, one of my favorite books. Everybody should have this book. Some of you have sent me this book from faraway places. Thank you. I don't need any more copies, but if you could find it, I want to encourage you to get it. I'm looking at page 110, and I'm looking at Professor Nelson, and on the right hand of the page is a little handwritten picture of a little handwritten list of 12 things he was praying for in the founding of Mountain View College in the Philippines in the 1950s. After 5,000 young people were or people were joining the church every year, and they needed a place to send these kids to college, God answered every single one on the list. It's an amazing miracle of God's provision to establish the work of our hands when the work of our hands is not departing to the left or the right. And while it's not easy today to be an Adventist educator, it's not much easier to be a pastor or administrator trying to find the balance between support and challenge. My kids have, my kids have been frustrated with me to the nth degree because I wasn't terribly sympathetic to their critiques of the teachers. And if they needed to talk to the teacher, go talk to them. Some of the teachers I've worked have been very frustrated with me. Why? Because I'm challenging them to be men and women of integrity and not wound the school, the child, the parent, the institution. Friends, when Dr. Gary Suds was doing his research, and this is a strange twist of fate because I looked to him, he actually encountered me for the first time When I was in the midst of the conflict, I described at the beginning of this sermon, that's the first time he met Ron Kelly, and he thought I was an enemy of Seventh-day Adventist education. He never told me that. But he actually sat in on a meeting with me and the conference president. (laughs) When he went to do his graduate work, his doctoral work, he included me in his studies. And captured a phrase that I heard him use over and over again. And this was the phrase by God's grace, it was my privilege to give it to him. I said that the Seventh day Adventist educational work was the crown jewel of ministries of the Seventh day Adventist church. But you know, friends, the jewel has to be protected, the jewel has to be polished. The jewel has to be held up. It has to be ensconced. It has to be set in the right settings. Friends, Jesus has one more work to do. And so let me tie it off this way. We all know there's a shaking coming, right? You ever heard of that? How does it come? How do we get a shaking? Spirit of prophecy makes it super clear: the shaking comes because of the straight testimony. In other words, there's a prophetic voice that jars the system enough to some choose separation over preparation. In that shaking, she says it will look like the church is about to what fall. God will shake the chaff out and he will garner the wheat into his harvest. He will pour out the Holy Spirit which creates the message of the fourth angel in Revelation 18, the loud cry. We need an army of youth rightly trained. It must begin in the home. It must be properly cared for in the school. It must be nurtured in the collective conscience of deviation from the divine plan must be announced and encouragement given from the pulpit. Faithful labor must be done for God must have a group of young men and young women who will answer the call and whose lives will bring a credibility to what they're saying that can't be resisted, gainsaid, or denied. The education of Jesus is to be the education of all by God's grace, for those who cannot stay at home and where the limits of home teaching come into practical understanding, there are to be schools who don't cramp and repress, who are humble and not proud, whose subject matter allows for reflection, and whose offerings meet cut the mustard with the accreditation system of heaven. It's not easy. There are people listening to me today who sit in responsible positions, none more responsible than you as a parent, but I'm calling on every person listening to me here today to walk in the footsteps of the master teacher, grace and wisdom. How about this, friends? How about if we just apply a beautiful orthodontic pressure slowly, gradually, with a goal of making the crooked places straight? And may God help us with sweetness and beauty to walk in the path of the Master Educator. If you're in education today and you haven't read those books I mentioned, then you're walking blind and maybe ignorant. Jesus will turn back the battle at the gates. By God's grace, wherever our circle of influence goes, we'll do the same. May God help us to be faithful, humble, and teachable so that he can teach us whatever we need to know in this 21st century. Amen.